This is the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to the weekend. This is John Macaroon. You found the one-on-one podcast. This is the opportunity for me to have conversations with people that I find interesting. And thank goodness I've had a chat with her now for about 15 minutes, and she hasn't left the studio. I'm here with Alyanka Larianoff. Welcome to the one-on-one podcast. How did you find me? Well, thank you for having me. I'm so impressed with A, the the sports memorabilia that you have in here and also just the get up because as I think to my own podcast, I'm like, okay, I got a lot of work to do. I think it was just a tweet. That's what I love of Twitter so much is that you can literally ask a question and then your followers will connect you and these spontaneous things just kind of happen. And I was so flattered to hear you respond back and say, hey, would you be interested in doing an interview? So um, here I am, and I'm very excited. I'm I'm very excited to see um, how you shape this conversation. This will be interesting. Yeah, the, one of the fascinating things for me was I, when I saw your tweet, um, I came across it, and I saw that you were a podcaster that was seeking stories. Mm-hmm. And so part of my curiosity was, is this young lady willing to come in and share her story with me? Because once I kind of checked your website out, kind of found what you did, I'm like, hmm, sometimes some people do not like talking about themselves, but I presented an opportunity for you to come in and share your story. And I'm so glad that you took me up on the offer. Yeah, I think perhaps it was the fact that you're also a psychologist. And that to me was really fascinating because in, you know, working as long as I did and in broadcasting and just interviewing as many people as I have, a lot of times in talking to fellow broadcasters, they don't have a psychological background. um, And so they kind of stick to these very uh, just sports related questions without really understanding the person that they're talking to. And I love that you might be able to just like prick the surface surface and actually go in and, 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 and and seep out kind of different information than what I've been putting out there because you know when you're when you're telling your own story you don't you're so thick in the forest like you don't know what you're leaving out or what you're hiding type of thing you know at this point in time in your life what kind of things are you doing for work uh for work wise it's so it's so interesting my life has has changed I think once I turned 30 um and you know just to give a bit of context um I I had been battling an eating disorder for 10 years and it kind of got to a place where I had to make a decision whether or not I wanted to live or die. As dramatic as that sounds, it, that's that was the case. And I, I not by choice, moved back to Detroit to be with my parents to step into recovery. And and that allowed me time and space and stillness to listen to what I really wanted to do instead of just working. And one of those things was to start a podcast and start to tell the stories that I wanted to tell the way that I wanted to tell them. So the, the podcast was born from from my sickness and my recovery. Um, and then I started to just kind of dive into the Detroit community to better understand what was happening with the fabric of the city. Uh, you know, there's there's so much going on and people talk about the Detroit Renaissance, which has been occurring. It's not something new. And so there's this kind of pivotal moment that is happening right now, which is as corporations move in, are we willing to keep our history alive and are we willing to keep the fabric alive? And, you know, just to talk about sports for a second with the little Caesars arena opening up, I was very, uh, I was nervous cause I love the Joe Louis. I grew up in the Joe Louis arena. And so when I went to little Caesars, I actually went with my dad for the first time and I was so impressed with the Red Wings, uh, and the Illich family for keeping the history alive. I mean, as you walk down the concourse, you see these like beautiful gold plated, uh, medallions or or dimes, if you will, with kind of the, the the more important players of the Red Wings dynasty. And I walked up to my father's, and I just felt like, wow, this is a big deal, you know. And in the locker room too, where the players sit, you have the current roster, and then above them, above the stalls, you have the roster of, I guess, the ninety six ninety seven team, which is like, if you know sports, if you know anything about sports, like that is that team was just insane, you know, and. Uh, so it's just, it's interesting that, 
even as though even as change is occurring and corporations are moving in, they're keeping the history alive. So I really wanted to make sure that that was happening in all in all walks of life and all nooks and crannies of Detroit. And and so I started, you know, engaging with the community really. Um, and through that, I I started creating and, and cultivating spaces for gatherings. And in stepping into my own personal recovery and understanding who I am, I really felt that authenticity, uh, transparency, vulnerability are all tools that we need and that we don't really use that much anymore because we can hide behind our screens and we're losing the art of listening in conversation. So I thought, okay, how can I, how can I make this important and cool? You know, cause everybody wants to be cool. So um, those are kind of the things that I've been working on, but it's just, it's so different than my old life, you know, which is interesting to, uh, to look at from afar. How long have you been a Metro Detroiter? I always say that I, I moved here in 95 I left San Jose. My father was playing for the Sharks. And he always tells the story that it was Scotty Bowman who kind of poached him from uh, the Sharks because I think at the time the Sharks and Wings were playing in playoffs and the Sharks either, not, I don't think swept them, but they had this crazy playoff series. And Bowman was like, I need that Russian. Um, and he kind of just like sculpted the Russian five, which is again, just such a, I mean, that line was incredible. Um, so 95, I came here and I more or less was here until 2006 when I when I graduated high school. And then like most young adults, I was like, all right, see you guys. <laughs> I'm out. But the interesting thing about Detroit is that no matter what, my family included, we, we always come back. Life always brings us back here. And Detroit provides that space to really come into yourself, to understand who you are. It, um, and it really is this sports town. And more so than that, it's a hockey town. Uh, and that feels real to me. It, it It's part of my fabric, whether I like it or not. Um, the city has given so much to my family. So I do feel a sense of responsibility to give back. So I'd say, yeah, if there's any city that feels close to me, it's Detroit 100%. Now, everyone out there listening, if you have the opportunity, definitely go check out com. It's a very fascinating look at somebody who I believe is in search of their own story. Mm. And so when I was looking at how did I want to approach you and your introduction, I said to myself, I wasn't going to bring up who you were related to until the end. But since you brought it up, you are the daughter of Igor Lariana, former Red Wing. But I really wanted to get your story. And so that is a very fascinating look as well, growing up with somebody who has definitely national prominence, international prominence, and somebody who is definitely revered here in Metro Detroit. But I'm very fascinated with your story. And your website was so fascinating. And one of the reasons why I found it fascinating was it is a raw look at somebody who I believe is in search of either, you know, contentment, is looking for satisfaction, and is sharing their story along the way and letting people know, look, there are some things in my life that are challenging, but here I am and exposing themselves via the internet platform. Was that the purpose initially when you started your website? Yeah, 100%. I felt like I was living a lie. You know, for 10 years working in media, everything that I would post was a lie. Uh, I was sick. You know, I was killing myself. The image that I portrayed of this thin-looking woman wasn't because this that's my natural state. It was because I was starving myself. And this is not, it's not an illness that you mess around with. You know, it has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And unfortunately, we don't do a good enough job of of talking about eating disorders and and mental health period. You know, there's still this taboo where it's it's not it's it's deemed weak if there's something wrong with your with your head, you know, as as you know, we we have doctors and 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 for anything that's physical. It's almost like we need to to see it to believe it. And the fact that someone's saying if, if especially for example in my case I had a voice in my head for 10 years, you know, that was telling me, don't eat that. You don't deserve that. You're ugly. You're fat, which looking back, I wasn't, but that's what I felt. You know, it's that issue with self-esteem and control. So I felt responsible. I didn't want to be the cause of others stepping into that illness. And I do feel that I suppose in seeing how society is changing and that everybody right now is more or less a brand creator. You know, where we literally curate the world that we want people to think that we're living in. And then we meet these people and we realize they're actually flawed. They're imperfect. They have fears. They've failed. 
you know, all these human characteristics. And I started thinking, since when did it become wrong to be a human? And why was I so fearful of that? And it really became clear to me that if if I were to tell my story, speak my truth, champion my flaws, and stand in that foundation, broken even if it is, it empowers others to know that they're not alone in their journey. So around 20 years old, you're in the sports media, you're working. Was there a pressure that you felt externally as well (laughs) as the pressure you had internally to look a certain way, act a certain way? Do you feel like the eating disorder was something that was personal to you, but was also exasperated by the work that you were doing? Yeah, I think that's what's so complicated and complex about an eating disorder is it's not just one thing. It accumulates over time. Uh, But I do think that working in the industry that I was in, especially in sports, especially as a host, especially as a woman, I was often told, you know, to to dress a certain way or to look a certain way or to act a certain way. And a part of anorexia that's so interesting is that it's so contradicting in that you you disappear, but you disappear because you just want to be seen. You know, you want to be seen for who you are without being too much. And I often found myself in walking into locker rooms where I felt more or less objectified. You know, no one saw me for my brains um, or my personality. It was about the way that I looked. And so I started stripping myself. I started stripping myself of my makeup, my hair, the way that I would dress. I'd dress down. I wouldn't be as, you know, animated because I didn't want the male attention. But then that didn't work for the networks. The networks wanted someone that was blonde, wearing a lot of makeup and and flirty, but not too flirty. And you know, sexy, but not too sexy. So of course, as a young, impressionable girl who really wants to make it and wants to make a name for myself, I'm listening to all these things. I know, I remember Puck Daddy did an interview with me and they posted a photo. And for the first time, these comments came up on their article and it was, oh my God, that girl has such ugly legs and she has such ugly knees. That was the first time I noticed, that's the first time I heard that knees could be ugly. I didn't even know what that meant, you know? but I felt mortified. And so, yeah, you you get to a place where you think, I'm not good enough. Clearly, I'm not getting jobs because I don't look the part. So it it, it played a lot into, into the eating disorder for sure. Throughout the 10 years, did you at some point seek treatment um, unsuccessfully, just go back and forth in the struggle with the recovery? Yeah, for me, it was as I wrote, a, I wrote an essay about it on my website and it came in three knocks. The third one being this April 2017, when I finally stepped into recovery, the first two were were really devastating, but I bounced back really quickly because I'm just, I'm resilient. I, you know, have that no quit mentality. Uh, I think my Russian blood plays into it. And being raised by two athletes, there was no such thing as taking a rest or taking a beat or taking a moment. So I had gone into seeing nutritionists and therapists and doctors but within a couple of weeks, I was like, I'm fine. I don't need anybody. Look at me. I'm back to normal. And fortunately, the third time that wasn't the case, my body couldn't bounce back. I was basically bedridden for two and a half months. And that was a really tough time, but a really important time because if I hadn't gone through those two and a half months, I don't know that I would have stayed in recovery. Um, and I never want to go back. You know, I never want to go back to that life. It was so hard to live a double life. It was so taxing. I I was never present with anyone or with anything, you know. And I and I feel bad for those people who invested time and energy into me because I I shortchanged them um, and I shortchanged my life. I don't want to live like that anymore, you know. So if anyone who is listening to this and has has gone through um, any type of mental illness um, or struggle, the number one thing, and that's why I say tell your story, is to start talking about it. And if you can't talk about it, start writing about it, you know, because the more that you write, the more you hold up a mirror and you, you, you get, you get to come back into your original voice, you know, and that voice counters that evil voice in your head. And with time you get strength and then you can use that strength to seek out help, uh, whether it's somebody that you trust or whether it's a professional, obviously always go to professional if you can, but there is a way to, to get out of it. Um, and there is such a better life waiting for you. And I know I, I, I resented people that used to say that to me, um, but because they never understood. People would always say like, just eat something. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's like, well, 
if you know if I could, then there wouldn't be this problem. So seek out those people who understand. Day to day, what are some of the healthy thoughts or the healthy choices you are making in getting through your recovery today in 2017? Understanding that food is energy. Uh, changing my relationship to food in in not succumbing to the uh, emotional reasons for why I would restrict myself and seeing it as a source of of energy to be able to do the work that I want to do, to be able to be, you know, as close to 100% as I can, but also doing the work, sitting with the trauma, feeling the trauma. American society is so big on placing a Band-Aid on things, and you can't place a Band-Aid on trauma because it's still there. It's branded within you. So you really have to do the work to get to that trauma, uh, to see it, to feel it, to almost make friends with it and to say to it, you don't own me anymore. And I think that's why telling your story again is so important. When you tell your story, you start claiming your story. You have ownership over your story instead of the story owning you. That's such a huge, huge important thing. Um, I'm sure you as a psychologist know, you know, it's like you need to get that stuff out. <laughs> the longer it sits, the long it con- the more it consumes you. Um, so that those are kind of the, the small changes, but but inevitably big changes that I've made. And through the work that you do in your podcast, you're getting stories from other people as well that can be inspirational. Um, I listened to your Will Reef podcast and a very fascinating look at somebody who was the son of a very famous actor, mm-hmm. Christopher Reeves. Mm-hmm. And right away you come across thinking, wow, this is a very positive individual. This is an individual that is thinking in a way that is very healthy in terms of when you deal with trauma, when you deal with traumatic situations. And so his bright outlook, I'm sure when you were listening to that, you were probably absorbing his personality and wondering, look, there are tough things in this world, but there are outlooks that can help us try and shield ourselves from the tough stuff in life. Yeah, maybe not so much shield, but to just see them for what they are. And that was the huge game changer for me in speaking to Will was that he spoke about his father, Christopher Reeve, saying that hope is the magic elixir. And that just blew my mind. I never thought about hope as a positive thing. I always thought, I'm Russian, I'm more cynical. So I thought, you know, in, in, in believing in hope, you're setting yourself up for failure and disappointment. But in fact, you know, there is that silver lining um, and it just takes work. No one ever said being happy is easy. You know, I always kind of preach this thing of being at a content five. You know, people are always like, I'm a 10 today on my happy scale. I'm always a content five. You know, if I can be in that balanced space, that's good enough for me because reaching that high or going to that low is not sustainable. Uh, so I feel the more that we 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 allow people to just you know, be in, in the space of fiveness, um, the easier life will be. Is your work as a host, producer, storyteller, podcaster really helping you get back to your original voice? And if not, how in your work or how in your life are you trying day by day to really reach your original voice, the one that you spoke about? Yeah, I think uh, the podcast certainly helps because it gives me that uh, ownership, that control but also that free exploration of seeing where my mind takes me or where the energy of the conversation takes me without having to second guess it. I have this podcast coming up with Paul Rabel, who is a professional lacrosse player, has a podcast of his own, is an investor. And he his podcast to me is so brilliant. I'm so happy that an athlete is speaking to other athletes in such a meaningful way. And I recently wrote him and I said, it's not my best because we recorded it in July and now it's December. And I said, it's not my best, but in being true to my myself, I'm flawed and not perfect. And I was deep in my recovery then. So I'm just going to release it if it's okay with you. And maybe we can do another one with all my lessons learned now, and it'll be that much better. So it allows me to see myself for who I am, you know, in, 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 in the writing, in the hosting, in the podcasting, in gathering people in a room and facilitating a safe space to have conversation. Everything's so raw. It's okay to make a mistake, you know, as long as, you know, Maya, Maya Angelou has this great quote, when you know better, you do better. You can't know better unless you make those mistakes. So it's all that type of uh, learning curve that is allowing me to reconnect with who I am inside. 
Now, I want to get into, um, because you've experienced it, your work in sports media, um, being objectified, trying to get ahead, being a woman, and especially now in 2017, I'm sure you've heard the news regarding several men in power, you know, sexually harassing women. You've seen situations where day by day now, it's almost every single day, we're talking about somebody else that has been acting inappropriately in the workplace. When you reflect on working in the media and working as a woman and dealing with superiors, do you ever feel like, you know, you were not valued as a person or treated just as, you know, a, a young blonde woman and not for the person that you were? Were you made to feel that way in, in the career setting? 100% I was. Okay. Uh, overtly or was it? You know, the question is what's overtly? Mm-hmm. At this point, you know, what's interesting is this conversation is great that it's happening, but I'm so shocked by people saying, I had no idea. That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. How do you, what do you mean? You know these things are whispered about and sometimes there's shouted out loudly. You know that that is what ha- is happening in any male dominated industry, um, especially if you're dealing with women who have to look a certain way. Like I was, I was asking, meaning like, did a producer tell you, look, you got to look a lot sexier. You got to look a lot better. or you are going to be at this level forever? Were you overtly told that you got to do X, Y, and Z to get ahead and not told like, look, you got to tell great stories. You got to, you know, make sure your mic presence is amazing. Were you told a lot of things maybe skewed towards your, you know, sexuality in terms uh, other than maybe your talents doing the work that you were doing? Yeah, I, I okay. was, I remember being told to wear a skirt for a certain thing that I did. And I think I actually remember a lot of people tweeting about my, my skirt and my legs, um, thankfully in a positive way at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, but again, if I had the self-esteem, I wouldn't even have reacted to that. Um, I've had, you know, meetings with agents who would say to me, you're just a little too cerebral. You know, like if you would just lose that serious angle and just be more bubbly and fluff and blonde and, you know, play up your sensuality uh, 100%. I I had a conversation with somebody in the Pittsburgh Penguins when I first started working in, in hockey and in, in the media industry. Basically said to me, you know, you're not to fraternize with players, which to me, it didn't. I didn't know what that meant because these weren't players. These were people that I grew up with. So I didn't understand how to... How was I supposed to act then? And to, you know, lose my last name. Your last name no longer matters. You are nobody. You are just a media member. And I don't know that that's okay to say to anybody, um, let alone a 21-year-old girl, you know, who was just bright-eyed and excited to do something. But likewise, in my last job, yeah, we had male producers who were making double what I was making. And I was told at times, you know, you as a woman, we can't set out, sent out to... Uh, wherever it was in the world, because you're a woman, and heaven forbid something were to happen, how would how would I cover this up? And I didn't understand that. What does that mean, cover it up? So if a man was there, he'd be better equipped to handle the situation, you know. So there's there's a lot of a lot of that, and there's a lot more behind the scenes stuff um, in terms of interacting with athletes too. You know, I think when a person has that much power, money, status. And also as good looking, they assume that they can have whatever they want when they want it, however they want it, doesn't matter um, the circumstance. So certainly through social media and just encounters personally, there have been a lot of inappropriate comments made for sure. And so now people are discussing it a lot more. People are kind of, you know, really open to discussing proper behavior, men towards women, um, workplace requirements, how to not sexually harass a woman. But in terms of your work, do you think that it was truly malicious or was it producers that were reflecting back what the culture says is that, look, these are they knew that ratings sometimes were indicated by potentially having younger, beautiful women on the air. And so do you think it's more of a cultural problem or do you feel like it was a situation where men in dominance took advantage of situations that they were placed in? I don't know that men in dominance is any different than a cultural problem. Mm-hmm. They're the same thing. If you have integrity, you you don't perpetuate a wrongdoing just because you want ratings. So I understand the fear in losing your job, and I understand the demands of higher ups suggesting that you know they need to win the race. I think both are at fault here, right? It's a tricky conversation, of course, because. What is appropriate? Um, I think I think we're all grappling to understand that that answer. 
the only way we can get to that is by having the conversation and also not necessarily pointing fingers at one another. I think when we, we, when we blame, we put people in a corner and they have no opportunity except to either cower or to become defensive and angry. And we just need to look at ourselves and, and yes, look at society and say, why are we, why is, how, why, how has this been okay? And why um, haven't we done a better job? And um, I, I really do think things will change now. I do. I'm, but I am still waiting for the big sports story. Like I'm shocked that nothing's come out. It, it just blows my mind, which means it's probably coming because we best believe that once one comes out, oh, there's, so it's just, yeah. It's going to change. Yeah. Like you said, having the conversation is an avenue to improve things. So in your opinion, just uh, in terms of how men treat women, how society works, how we do things via social media, how we rate people, how we treat each other, what are small things that you know people listening today can do just to start the process and be their own kind of change? You know, that's a tough question. I would say that um, I, I, I say always to friends and in my gatherings uh, for people to speak their truth. But I think what people don't recognize and, and I follow up with saying the truth, meaning, however, if it stems from a space of love, you know, when you speak your truth out of a space of love, there's no opportunity or any other emotion that comes along with fear, which is anger, hate, resentment, uh, you, you name it, jealousy. I believe firmly that people become their monster selves out of insecurity, out of deep trauma and pain, and because they feel like they're not seen. And so what's the best way of being seen? To do something drastic and dramatic. Perhaps if I had been a person capable of hurting others, I wouldn't have had anorexia. I would have done something that was hurting others. I didn't have that capability, so I hurt myself. So you know, I think it's, again, having the conversation, providing a safe space of no judgment, and just really thinking about, you know, when you, if you look at, if you do inner child work, right, if you, if you look at yourself as a young child, or if you look at your partner, or anybody in a room as a young child, you'd never say those types of things to a child, you'd never make those advances on a child, hopefully. So if you just remove those layers that we see like successful, has a job, money, car, whatever, all these labels, if you just remove that and strip that aside, it's just a human being. And you got to do the work. You got to hold up the mirror and say, what kind of a human am, am I? You know? So it's not, it's not like a flip the switch. Let's change society. It takes work. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's why the, the first gathering was three people. And then we had five and now we have 12, and now we have repeats. You know, it takes time to get people to want to show up and be vulnerable and to tell their story and to speak their truth because we're not used to doing that. We're used to just holding up a facade and saying, this is who I am, but when I close my door, I'm a completely different person, you know? And upcoming on Tuesday, I believe you're having a talk discussing thoughts about modern men. Yeah, I love those talks so much. So we're doing it in Boston Edison, uh, a friend of mine uh, is lending his house, and it's a beautiful, beautiful house in Detroit. Uh, but it's it is interesting because the the dynamic shifts right between the men's gathering and the women's circles. I host them differently with the men's gathering. It's more of a a dialogue and a discussion, and we kind of go back and forth. Our last one, we we dissected the the definition of masculinity, which was really interesting. Um, but you know, the group of people that showed up are those who are thinking about that. So I have friends and acquaintances that I've met who I've brought up this idea. I'm like, just come check it out. I'm not doing that. That's for sissies, you know? So when I have that guy come to a gathering, I'll be really happy, you know, because that means we're making change. But the only way that that change can occur is to have those guys on Tuesday who show up have an amazing experience feel like they they were heard connect with a new group you know a new person or a new group and then to go and spread the word that's the only way that this change will happen growing up who were your influencers who are people that you looked up to uh, who were people that when you were growing up uh, maybe young in in the business or um, just growing up maybe watching on television who were people that you found to be influencers in your life well I guess in in as it pertains to hosting unfortunately 
And I'm I'm very conflicted by this, but I I loved loved Charlie Rose. You know, I thought his I think still his show. You know, to separate the two,、mm-hmm. his show is one of the best. The way that he interviews is just so eloquent and beautiful, and he knows how to. You know, you really feel like a fly in the wall when he's interviewing, and he. You might not even understand what he's talking about. Sometimes he has like political leaders, and you're not caught up in foreign politics. But、um, you just feel like, wow, this is something magical, and he's able to pierce through anyone who sits in front of him, and he's so smart. But I also, in recent years, really love、um, you know Terry Gross on NPR. Again, she's similar to a Charlie Rose, where she's like really deep, amazing conversations.、Um, Tim Ferriss, I think, is really good, and I I. I liked him because he he's vulnerable in that he's kind of a guinea pig, you know. He puts himself through hell just to see what it feels like, and he's authentic and genuine in his delivery. In that sometimes he just doesn't know stuff, and he's kind of a nerd, which I love. But originally, you know, the two OGs, I guess, back in the day, Larry King, because Larry always preached that he wanted to make sure that he was like the viewer, like the audience member. So his questions were very basic. What, who, where, when, why? Done,、uh, and that's why you had these kind of like open-ended dialogues, you know. And then Carson Daly, he was the man on TRL. Like to to do a show like that every single day with some of these incredible musicians and actors. Who it's tough to do a live audience, you know, show. So yeah, I mean, I you would think it'd be some kind of an athlete or a sports person. It wasn't. I guess in, inevitably life took me to that place, right?、So. Have you ever had a chance to meet one of your influencers? I met Larry King,、uh, which was a crazy moment for me. I interviewed him actually when I worked for the Brooklyn Nets, and he was really, really sweet. He had his suspenders on. Really, kind of small man, but just this like powerhouse. And then I, I did actually see Charlie Rose at the same time, and I was very, very nervous, but I didn't get to meet him.、Um, but again, I feel so conflicted about him now. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I think if I were to ever sit down with Terry Gross, my life would just be complete. You know, she's a she's a legend. I I feel. Yeah, it is fascinating to look at those that we have looked up to as influencers, and、yeah. sometimes recognize. You know what? The simple notion is everybody's human. We all make mistakes on small scales, on medium scales, and on big scales. And sometimes, you know, when we recognize the human flaws, then we are able also to maybe separate. Out that you know what? As an interviewer in the professional realm, he was able, in terms of when he was doing good things, he was a good interviewer. He portrayed you know things that you found to be fascinating in your line of work. But at the same time, maybe in the way he treated people or in the way that he started to formulate his relationships with others, it became you know maladaptive for him. And so, as humans, we also have to recognize that we have to start looking at and evaluating how do we feel about people. Who do bad things? Do we、yeah. forgive? Do we punish? Do we give second chances based on what? And that's one of the big things that people debate here in the Metro Detroit area in terms of crime, in terms of society. We say, does this person need help? Does this person need to be sitting across from a professional, or does this does this person need to serve out time? For their punishments, and as a society, we we debate it back and forth.、Um, a lot of times in my talks, people will tell me, "I can't believe he's using that whole mental health excuse. He's just a bad person."、Mm. And for me, I'm definitely conflicted because me sitting here as a psychologist, I always try to find the good in people.、Yeah. And even the stories I'm hearing now, every single day, my mind doesn't take me to, "Oh my God, this is a really sick individual," or "Oh my God, what what is he doing?" I, I tell myself. What what level of narcissism is there, or what level of thinking, or what caused this kind of behavior? And so that's just where I'm at with it. Is I go back and forth. I'm conflicted, but we have to take stock and really pay attention to knowing that good people do bad things. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a couple of good points. I think one of which is it's it's hard to say like what's. What's on the scale of good to bad, right? You you really can't rate that,、um, but you also have to, I believe, give the opportunity for someone to want to heal,、uh, and that takes work and it takes a long time,、um, and it takes stepping away from what you're doing. The other thing I think what you said was important is separation, separating the person that we believe they are versus who、mm-hmm. they truly are. And I saw that firsthand as a daughter of a famous athlete. You know, I never understood fans. 
I still don't understand them. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand how you can be so passionate about someone you do not know. Because oftentimes when you meet them, you are most likely disappointed mm -hmm. because you see them at, as this huge figure. Well, I'm the guy. I'm the guy to ask, and we'll talk about that definitely. Fan relationships and obviously that kind of thing. But I'm going to put a, a tough question to you, mm. okay? And uh, I'm interested to hear how you conceptualize this, okay? Now, let's say five months from now, Charlie Rose calls you and says, "Hey, I've been forgiven. I have this opportunity. I want to work with somebody in that in in the field of interviewing. I have my own show. I've done X, Y, and Z. Would you work for a guy like Charlie Rose after what has happened? Oh, straight up, I wouldn't work for him. But I would be interested in... Would you be part of a project or what level of involvement, if yeah, at all? I would, I would be... The only thing that I would consider doing... Let me put it this way. I don't, I don't see that Charlie Rose could give me any opportunity as much as I'd love to see his notes and his prep and all this stuff. Um, I wouldn't... I'm not the person to take a shortcut anyway. What I would do, however, is say, all right, would you... Come on my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And let's talk about it. Tell me your story. You know, why did you do that? What have you learned? You know, what have you learned in going deep within? What's your recovery been like? Mm. Because that's what it is. You personally, are you a forgiving person? I've had to become one. I wasn't before. I held on grudges. But, you know, grudges are like scabs uh, and they don't benefit yourself nor the person that you're holding them against. So, Yes, I forgive others uh, and I forgive myself. So to me, in a situation like a Charlie Rose, you know, I can't be the person to forgive because I wasn't part of what happened. I also don't need him. But if he were to prove that he's done the work and is willing to be open about it and to talk about it, I think that's an incredible opportunity to, again, start that conversation that's so so desperately needed. I don't want to say make amends because you you know that's really tough to to quantify. But let's see what you learned. What's changed? So if that were the case, I'd certainly at least be interested in having the conversation. So what was it like being the daughter of Igor Larionov? Yeah, I mean, what do you want to know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think like I always say that uh, I loved going to the Joe Louis Arena because second intermission Little Caesars pizza was like the best thing ever. I didn't care about hockey. I liked, you know, I liked watching my dad, but only if we were standing by the Zamboni gate with Al Sabatka. And there was this awesome moment that when my dad would kind of like circle around behind the goalie's net to go off to do a face-off, he'd skate by and like wink at us. And moments like that were really cool because, you know, you see an arena full of 16,000, 18,000 people and he is so busy and focused and yet he has time to see us, you know? The cool things, of course, are being on the ice when they win the Stanley Cup or riding in the car with him down Woodward Avenue during the Stanley Cup parade. How old were you when that happened? I was 96, so I was 9, 10. What do you remember about that experience riding down Woodward after a championship when there's so many people that adore, you know, somebody that you know personally? I remember two things. One is my dad was holding his sign upside down and my sister and I were so embarrassed. Um, and then the second thing, and you can see this if you if you go Google that, my name and my dad, there's a photo of us and both my sister and I are holding our ears because it was so loud. I mean, I think a million people came out that day. I'd never seen that many people in Detroit. I mean, especially at that time. You know, it was incredible and, and also just so bittersweet you know, because of the accident and losing a human personality uh, with Vlad. Uh, he was an exceptional, I mean, he is an exceptional person. I recognize he's he's still alive and, and living. And But the loss of that personality, I, I mean, I went to his hospital bed every day after school uh, because he was like a child. And so with all of us kids, when everybody else was busy doing adult things, he'd always play with us which is such a contradiction to the, the, the man that he was on ice. I mean, that guy was a beast. Like, there, I don't, I don't know that there was anybody else like him, you know? Was Igor a strict dad with you, or how, what kind of parent was he? Yeah, my dad, I don't know that he was necessarily strict in what I did. He just always emphasized, you know, working out and healthy eating and, um, you know, choosing a career early on. My mom was more strict than my dad. My dad wasn't around often, so... 
you know, if you were to ask me, did I have a close relationship to him? I would say it was very surface, you know, and that's something that we've been building in the recent years of my life. It's tough. Like the life of an athlete is the life of an athlete. They don't have time for anything else. They're so regimented and they have to have that focus, like the greats at least. Um, And I was lucky enough to be, again, those teams were filled with legends. I mean, you think about those names, um, they're all hockey hall of famers. So yeah, it definitely had its perks, but also it's downsides like any relationship i think now you had asked what goes on with in the minds of fans in regards to how they view athletes and things yeah. like that the word that you want to look up is projection and here's the big reason why it happens you know the money aspect of it the lifestyle the thoughts that the fan has in terms of how much effort is being put in versus like the thinking is like okay if i was igor larionov i would do this or i would do that or i would try to be the absolute best you know i'm making this much money so he should just do all this mm. based on what's in their own representation of what an athlete should do and so the definition of a fan is a fanatical right. so it's not logical it's not it's based on you know a lot of different things but people fans, and I'm speaking based upon also my thoughts as well, is that, you know, people can be very competitive. They can, you know, project, you know, that the Red Wings are my team, that we're facing, it's us versus everybody else. And when there's success, it's the highest of highs. And when there's lows, it's like, you made me mad. You are, you're part of the reason why I'm, I'm feeling this way. And so there's a certain level of projection mm. in terms of sometimes people wishing that they were living that life or also at the same time, maybe taking it a little bit too far in terms of riding the emotional roller coaster of sports. Absolutely. Sports is competition. It's about winning and losing. It represents a lot of things for people in life. And sometimes people take it to uh, an extreme where they take a lot of their stuff that they got going on in their life. And for those two or three hours, they want satisfaction from their sports team. Yeah. So what is that what you would credit to? Is that they need a release of sorts? Like, is that is that similar to the actions that we take with alcohol or drugs then? Exactly. Yeah. It's a form of coping. It's a form of being part of a bigger self. Like a lot of fans would think, I'm part of the Red Wings. Why? Because we invest in the team by going to games, buying the hat. We take a little bit of our own personal dollar and invest. And when you take someone's dollar out of their hand, uh, they feel maybe a little bit more of an investment than what's really there. So how are your listeners going to react to what you're saying right now? Oh, they know. I'm a fanatical. They, huh. they follow me on Twitter. The ones that listen follow me, and they know that there's a little bit of a fanatical in there with a little bit of humanity because they know I'm a psychologist, and I taper off the – I try my absolute best not to take it personal or try to just focus on the performance with a strong edge as a fan. And I just be me. And what I do is what – I, what I say is I welcome – your opinion. So if you were to read something that I wrote and you're to write, that is an absolutely disgusting thought. I read it and I go, I'm sorry I made her feel that way. And I keep it moving. Mm. I, do, I don't take anything personally. I allow people to judge me for what it is for them because I'm not in anybody's shoes. What I do is my thesis for the project was whatever's in this brain shoots out of the internet. And that's what it was. And so I was going to go with it. And if it succeeded, in which I think it has, then I would, I'll keep doing it. But if it hasn't, I would have maybe changed but I feel like my thought as a fanatical person who loves sports, that that was my outlet in my way of being part of something that I love and am passionate about, being a fanatical person. Yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's obviously something to it. Otherwise... Mm-hmm. But I know you, you, you're, uh, I think you're looking at me going, there are some treatment of fans and, and athletes that are way over the top in terms of now what we call keyboard warriors, those that are just so willing to sit behind a keyboard and throw out nasty things that they would never say. I think there is a line, obviously, but I know based upon probably some things that have happened in in your experience with your dad and what he shared with you, that there's a certain disconnect that he has to have in terms of dealing with it all because not everything that he heard probably was favorable. Well, I think too, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these guys who are top athletes, they obviously give credit to the fans because if they're, you know, they they often call them sixth man mm-hmm. uh, because if they weren't there, yeah, it's fun. Like the reason is to win, but also you want to win for your town. You want to win for your city, for your mm-hmm. fans. But I doubt that many of them begin their trajectory into the sports world because they want to have fans. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you, if you do start on that, it will probably end poorly for you. Mm-hmm. So, but I also don't want to discredit the fanatic. Of course. You know, because to them, it, it too is a meaningful and probably fulfilling part of their day. Perhaps I'm missing something in life. I don't know. Maybe I need to be a fan of 
something, <laughs> but I just haven't found that yet. Understood. What is your relationship now with sports in Detroit? Yeah, I would say there isn't one. Okay. Um, you know, I went to, as I mentioned earlier, to the one game uh, with Detroit Red Wings played the Colorado Avalanche. Mm -hmm. The relationship to that was, I was like, I missed the 90s because <laughs> yeah. that was that rivalry was amazing and that fight that happened which in fact they actually showed at little caesar's arena and the crowd was the loudest they were during the entire game uh just to go just to show how important history is you know i i i'd be happy to go see a game if i had season tickets ice level like literally by the glass um but otherwise i, I just it, it was you know, yeah. I grew up on that, so it doesn't affect me. I'd much rather go watch a film, you know. What kind of films are you into? What kind of films have you watched recently? <laughs> well, my brother always says the the depressing kinds. Um, I, I, so Mother, I watched recently Darren Aronofsky's film, and I actually had like a severe migraine after that. Um, mm. I tweeted this morning about Greta Gerwig's uh, directorial uh, debut of Lady Bird, which is beautiful. Um, you know, coming of age stories. I love really deep emotional kind of um, character character stories, but also ones that have have great cinematography. You know, they're probably the ones that you don't want to go see if you're having a bad day. Because uh, I, I like to walk out of a film and continue thinking. I'm a thinker. So definitely not any of the blockbusters. So anything that, which is the one bummer about Detroit, and I wish that there was a theater downtown um, that played more of the indie films, the supported uh, filmmakers, but perhaps that's something we can work on. So outside of work, you, you enjoy film. What else do you enjoy in the Metro Detroit area? Yeah, I, you know, I think our art is really great. I think the Detroit Institute of Arts has one of the best collections I've seen, and I've been around to a lot of museums. Um, the public library in Detroit is spectacular. I mean, it's such a gorgeous building. I think we have amazing architecture as well. Um, the culinary scene is great. Uh, Selden Standard, I think, is like so, so amazing. And Apparatus Room at the Foundation Hotel. I'm, I'm just really interested in, in people, meeting people who are doing interesting things in Detroit. And by interesting, I mean who aren't showing up because it's an attraction. I keep saying to a lot of people that part of Detroit to me feels like Disneyland uh, because, you know, people load up into their cars and they go downtown and they check out the attract attractions, uh, whether it's sports, uh, casinos, restaurants, bars, and then they leave. Uh, I'm interested in the people who are staying. You know, why? What are they doing there? Um, and why do they care about the city? Why are they passionate about it? And what can we do to help them attain their dream or attain their vision? Um, there's a lot of work to be done. So it seems like you're willing to invest in planning some routes here. You know, seemingly... But I'm very good at not planning routes, mm -hmm. so I I don't have an answer to that. Um, I don't know that I'll ever have routes anywhere. You know, I've moved 30 times in my life. I don't know what home feels like. You can maybe educate me on that. But um, yeah, I you know I'm single and have been for a long time. I think that's one of the things that men are really terrified of is that I have no intention of placing routes. Perhaps they're even perplexed by it. Is like, why am I not? preaching marriage, kids, home, and, you know, family. It's just not something that I think about because there are so many more problems to to be fixed or to be helped. Um, what gets you riled up? What gets you angry? I try not to get angry. I really, I know that's a, such a boring answer, but, you know, I guess the only thing that would, would the misunderstanding of Russia gets me angry, I suppose, uh, because I think it's such a rich country and history and culture and i hate that americans don't know more about it and it's i don't think that it's their fault um here's your chance tell us a little bit of something that we should know yeah i mean i think you know moscow is one of the greatest cities in the world architecturally speaking historically food people i mean they're they're Russian people, although we have this, you know, running joke, Russians never smile. Um, yeah, they don't smile when they walk down the street. But if you were to get to their home, they're, you know, they're one of the the more kind of open, uh, inclusive group of people that I, I've, you know, I've ever known. In that we're we'll welcome you in, we'll we'll set up the table, we'll put some vodka on the table, you know, we'll have a good time, we'll we'll tell stories. And I, I, I think it's perpetuated by a couple stereotypes, which, you know, one is the Russian's always the bad guy. As it pertains to women, it's Russian male order bride. 
um, or as so many men have said to me, never trust a Russian woman, um, which I think is just not fair. Um, and then Putin, you know, people just look at Putin and they think the man who doesn't wear a shirt and goes fishing and hangs out with bears. I personally think he's brilliant. I think he's such a smart man. That doesn't mean that he's doing good things or that he's nice or, you know, kind, but he's incredibly smart and I don't think he's one to be underestimated. But I do think that these two countries are that have such an interesting relationship. It's just this like clash of superpowers, uh, very ego driven, but totally different in that sense. I think our, our souls are, you can't compare a country who, you know, the years of history, you, you just really can't compare. But I think, you know, I'd love to be able, I'd love to be able to do a doc on Russia and showcase to the world what it's really like, you know? When I had the opportunity to reach out to you and have this conversation, the really the only thought I had was, who is Elyanka Larianov? Okay, and obviously in an hour, there's so much more. So you know how I'm going to title this? I'm going to title this the one-on-one podcast. I'm going to have your name, but I'm going to put part one. And what's going to happen is I hope maybe in six months from now, you'll take me up on another invitation to keep the conversation going because you have a lot of depth to you. The one thing I'd like to leave you with is this. I hope that you keep that question in your mind all the time. Who is Elyanka Larianov? And I hope that you continue in your quest for satisfaction, being content professionally in any role that you take. I wish you well in your recovery. You. And and I, I'm thankful that you came and shared this hour with me. It meant a lot to, sh- to now get to know, hopefully, I'm a new colleague and maybe even a new friend. No, and I appreciate the time. This was so amazing for me. And I, I really just want to say, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that you blend the two sides of, you know, what is so needed in this industry, whereas sports knowledge, but also the the psychological human interest part. Um, and you do it so well. I thoroughly enjoyed our time. And I hope you at least cracked the surface, um, found something new out. So thank you. Follow her on Twitter and check out her website, alyankalarianoff.com. A very fascinating individual. Thank you so much.